Welcome to the No Neutral Moments Podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and it's my pleasure to discuss, to explore, and maybe even to discover what it means for each one of us to live our lives fully engaged, to challenge each one of us to be fully aware, and completely expecting to engage to the fullest everything we've been designed, called, and gifted to be. So with all this in mind, let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get engaged. Welcome to No Neutral Moments. This is Patrick Payton, and I'm sitting here with a good friend, Travis Stice. And some of you might know Travis from Diamondback, but uh, my journey with Travis begins on baseball fields. All of our boys uh, played baseball, and we fancied ourselves as coaches of baseball, and hopefully we did less harm than, than we imagined. And so over the years, I've gotten to know Travis fairly well, and he told me not to mention him, but we're also sitting in here with uh, our good friend, Mark Dingler. Uh, he's here to make sure we don't make mistakes and do anything wrong. So uh, counsel here at Diamondback. Anyways, uh, I want to get into it pretty quick, but I, I sent my friend Travis a text message about a week and a half ago and just said, hey, Travis, in this particular season in which we're in, in the oil industry, the economy of Midland, uh, I think it'd be great if our listeners could hear from a com- uh, a company leader what you've learned about yourself, what you've learned about business, because really, it, my conviction is you don't learn as much about yourself when times are perfect as you do about when times are bad. Uh, that's kind of biblical because it's trials and tests that refine us and make us. So Travis was kind enough to return my text, and then we had a phone call. And the reason we're doing this podcast is because I wasn't smart enough to press record on my cell phone when he started talking to me about what was on his heart and what was on his mind. So here we are. And the question that I posed to Travis was just, tell me the lessons you've learned. But before you do that, Travis, um, give us the, if you were introducing yourself, elevator speech, who you are. Uh, I I listened to you speak not too long ago, and you talked about being a Midlander from a long time ago, showed pictures of your parents being Midlanders. So just give us the, the, I grew up here speech, where you went to high school, some college stuff, and then we'll dive into the rest of it. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, again, uh, that's a great opportunity to be here, and I want to congratulate you on the success of No Neutral Moments. But, you know, you mentioned uh, I'm a native Midlander. Yeah, my dad was born here, and my dad, my granddad got here in 1926, a uh, product of uh, of all Midland high schools, Jane Long, Alamo Junior High School, uh, Lee Freshman, and Midland High School, uh, Lee High School, rather, class of uh, 1980, uh, and then went off to school at Texas A&M, and then really for the next 15-plus uh, years, Spent time kind of moving around the country, chasing my career, um, building my family, and wasn't until about 1999, 2000, we got moved back to Midland, and we said, okay, ah, this feels good, we're home. So uh, this is home uh, in all ways, shape, forms, and fashion, and uh, a, a proud Midlander. Excellent. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your family, just family, sure. wife, kids? Yeah, it all starts and uh, starts with my wife, Brenda. I've been married 35 years I'll be 36 this uh, this August. High school sweetheart. She was 15. I was 16, and uh, and God graced me with her uh, her presence. Uh, got a daughter that's uh, in her early 30s now. Two wonderful grandkids. Her and her husband lived in uh, live in uh, Houston. Uh, Matthew Stice, our special needs son, actually turns 30 this week, and uh, he lives here in Midland. And our youngest son, uh, Luke Stice, is uh, you know in the waning uh, days of chasing professional football. Uh, coronavirus has certainly put an interruption into his schedule. So that's our family. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to sit down and talk with Luke because it would be an encouragement 
there's so many young people out there who have a dream and have been told you're to this, you're to that, and none of the twos are ne- are positive. They're they're negative, and who set his mind to it and uh, has uh, played ball and pursued that dream. So uh, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, anyways, let's just go ahead and dive right in. And you've got a small book in front of you of notes <laughs> that you have uh, taken about this, and so I have a notepad with nothing on it. <laughs> but, uh, Super. I'm just going to listen. And and the question was very simply: Tell us what you've learned and. And and I know you're thinking about this, knowing that especially young people in your company, young people in other companies, and let's not be naive about it. There are people that are our age and older that uh, maybe need to pause for a minute as well and say, what am I learning? What are we learning? And and so take off wherever you want to start. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, you know, it's been said that, you know, you should never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, certainly we're in a crisis by any form of the definition, but also paused as I've heard that statement multiple times over the last three months is that, you know, I think you got to be a little careful about making too fundamental, too fundamental of changes in the middle of a crisis. And I'll explain that in a a little bit, but it's also certainly never a time to give up on your values. So, you know, we are in a crisis unlike anything we've ever seen. Uh, Professionally, we've seen, you know, the collapse of our global economies and and the impact that collapse has had on oil price. And we in Midland are spectacularly impacted daily by the impact on oil prices. And then even personally, I mean, I don't think any of us know, uh, can say we don't know someone that's not lost their job. I mean, we're 35 or 40 million Americans out of work. And so um, this is a spectacular uh, intervention. This is a spectacular interruption in life, unlike the world has seen in in well over 100 years. And so I do think it causes us to stop and pause a little bit and think about things differently because, you know, so much has been turned upside down. And for me, having these reflective uh, times over the last 10, 11 weeks, you know, I've got about three or four points that I think reflect things that I've learned. And the first is is that working from home? Um, you know, you would you would think uh, you would think that wouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind. But but what it what it showed me though is that I've been able to spend more time with my wife than any time in our 35 years of marriage. And guess what? You know, I, I really enjoy being physically close to my wife. Now that doesn't mean that she's you know in my office sitting right there next to me. But there's certainly comfort in her being here. And that really just, it reinforced, as I thought about this, it reinforced my belief that perhaps the biggest decision that I ever made was who I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And and also, I realized, you know, because she's so, so much a better person than I am, that, that I'm confident that God was involved in that decision because she's quite simply so much better than I am. But having her around for support, you know, counsel, and uh, sometimes gentle and maybe even sometimes not so gentle prodding uh, has made all the difference in me, uh, pandemic or not. And, and I think, Patrick, you mentioned there's going to be a lot of young listeners out there. Uh, I'll just say that you, you need to choose very carefully your life partner. And uh, that life partner has to be equally uh, yoked uh, with you. And, and I can tell you, as we return to work here in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to miss being at home and being with my wife. Let me let me stop you there. Um, oftentimes, we we forget that people 
voluntarily, I know they do it for pay, but voluntarily they give us nearly 40% of their life. And, and that's 40% of a day. That's 40% of a week. How does that reinforce? Because you speak of this as a value. How does that reinforce to you the value of, of what you communicate to your workforce as fam, of family when many of them are going to have to say the same thing? Wow, I, I think I've forgotten how much time I wasn't with my spouse or my family. So has that, has that reinforced for you, even reinforcing the value of family for your workforce? Yeah, I, I, think, I think I've always emphasized the importance of family. Um, you know, at times work interrupts that, that balance. And, you know, it, I, I've never been one that said that you have to be so prescriptive in your work-life balance that 40% of your time goes to the company and the rest of the time goes to working out and your family and dinner and youth sports and all those things. But in aggregate, you have to be able to keep that proper work-life balance. And it's honestly in this job that I'm in today has been the most difficult of any time in my uh, over 35 years career in the business because it it seems to me, and whether I've allowed it to become so uh, is a topic for another day probably, but it seems to me that uh, if I'm awake, I'm thinking about the company and I'm thinking about the employees. But but certainly, um, we will redefine as a society what that work-life balance looks like on the other side. And I don't think anybody has a clear definition of what that's going to look like, but it won't be the same. I'm confident of that. Yeah. Well, and there's probably a lot of spouses ready for their Spouse to go back to the office, so that's another discussion for another day. But fair point. I know that's a huge value for you, and I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to enforce that it's easy to forget about family, and maybe this is a balancing for us. So, anyways, continue. Good, great, thanks. So, the second thing I thought about lessons I've learned, and 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 this this one is is uh, is is, a, is much deeper. It's 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 much more uh, spiritual, important to me than than the, the mechanics and the trappings of the world, and that's the importance of quiet time preparing for the day. Um, I've always carved out uh, time early in the morning, uh, always, I say at least the last five plus years, um, carved out quality time in the morning to try to kind of prepare for the day. But in this unprecedented time that we're trying to navigate through, that quiet time each morning has taken on a new urgency it's it's almost a foundational survival mechanism for me. And what it has focused me to do is to move beyond asking for or reflecting about the future, but it's really reemphasized the importance of asking for wisdom and understanding that's sufficient just for today. You know, trying to understand what God's will is for me today, not what my mission in life is, although I still ask for that, but help me today. And uh, I didn't really recognize that until, you know, this pandemic hit and our whole world was turned upside down. But, you know, I, I recognize that that worry about worrying, which at times I think I'm supposed to get paid to worry about that. I, I realized that that worry uh, really destroys you know, the joy for today. Now, that's not easy, and I'm certainly a work in progress, but but I'm trying to really increase the urgency in that 
almost girding myself for battle with spiritual armor every day. You know, if, and I'll just tell you, if, you know, if quiet time, and everyone can define quiet time, you know, uh, differently, but, but if you're, if you don't have quiet time uh, as part of your routine, you know, you should try it, even if it's only five minutes, even if it means, you know, as I back the car to the driveway to, to go to the grocery store, to go to the, go to work, that rather than, uh, rather than turning on sports talk show or music or podcast, unless it's no unless neutral, it's no neutral yeah, unless it's no neutral moments right. podcast, just pause for a minute and, and find quiet time to get yourself ready for the day. I, I think you'll find that those five minutes or whatever the time frame is for you will be, will be life changing. And I'll tell you, you know, life has a funny way of the, the term I use is, is putting life blemishes on you. And if you don't have a way to combat on a daily basis those life blemishes that come your way, they're going to be a lot harder to become a part of your past, and they'll have a tendency to stay around and be part of your future. So I uh, can't emphasize enough for me personally that Im- that importance of, um, of really trying to prepare for, for battle each day. Well, you're, you're talking about the soul of the leader, and I, I hope that this point doesn't just come across as simply this is – Travis practicing his faith, which it is, but the the balance of the soul of the leader. I'm reading a biography, another biography of Winston Churchill right now. Any of these great men of the past, whether it's Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Winston Churchill, all the way down to uh, a JFK, or you can even read about President Bush W., who would spend time in the mornings getting his or her soul right. It's it's again a checkpoint. I just want to make sure we don't just jump past that, that especially the young leaders, we always say young leaders, but even the older leaders who have forgotten the importance of get your soul right, because if your soul's not right, you can't lead the souls of others because you've got to put yourself in a position of wisdom, not in a position of panic and reaction. So that's just been reinforced for you during this time. It really has, it really has been, and I can't emphasize enough the the kind of the, the tectonic shift I've had from, hey, let's not worry about the future. Let's just, you know, let just give me the grace and courage to live today mm-hmm. with all the fullness that I can. Mm-hmm. Who in your life taught you the value of what we've referred to as a quiet time? Was there somebody uh, that stands out? Yeah, unquestionably, my wife Brenda. Mm-hmm. She is, uh, you know, she's working on sainthood, and I have watched her for decades carve out no matter what. Even if she had to get up at three in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with Matthew or whatever, she would carve out uh, time to get ready for the day. Yeah, and uh, she's been a, you know, an, an unbelievable supportive force, and her example of life has uh, has has uh, encouraged me to to adopt that practice. So this is a this is a, a trap question. So you can pass on it if you'd like. Outside of your. Uh, sacred texts that are a part of your meditation and getting your soul right. Are there any particular books you go to also to help you to get your soul right and to get your mind right? Yeah. You know, I I tend to roll through numerous books. You know, my, one of my favorite authors right now is a man that's leading dynamic Catholic called Matthew Kelly. And uh, he has a pretty unique way of speaking to me in any way. And it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a good way for me to, he writes it in ways that you can read a chapter a day, you know, pretty easily. Uh, but there's been other authors that some of which you recommended from men's the men's Bible yeah. study that that uh, I participated in. Um, but 
you know, the ability to read and to take time to read, uh, we have to remember that that people that don't read are no better off than people that cannot read. Right. And so the, the power of the written word is, uh, is incredibly important. Well, the soul of the leader, that's a big one. Let's keep yeah. going. We've covered family and soul. I'm yeah. encouraged to see what else is going to come. So the next point um, is, you know, the, the recognition of who is in control. You know, now, my character, Mark's in the room and can— you know, I, I think most people would describe me as a as an orderly and structured engineer, kind of the the, the typical definition. Uh, although I've long since given up my basic engineering skills, but I think I, I still tend to work at the world, look at the world through uh, you know a finely constructed spreadsheet, and, and believe that you know the more data I can get, the more control I am of the outcome. And I think of all the lessons that I've learned through this pandemic in these last three months is that. Uh, and as difficult as for me is that I'm not in control. Um, you know, now listen, I know that's going to that's going to continue to be a daily battle uh, for me. But but getting knocked down like we as an industry have been, and in feeling the, the anxiety that we have in our organization, uh, I know that this is bigger than me. And so, uh, and I and I tell you that the recognition of this who is in control issue has also reinforced in me the significance of humility. You know, whether you look at it personally or you look at it professionally, this pandemic has laid bare our inner souls. And not all might recognize that, but I certainly have. And I realize that, you know, that love for humility, that that focus on humility allows you to be truly authentic and fully integrated. And let me tell you what that means as I interpret it. When you talk about an authentic leader, you know, it's, it's sort of what you see is what you get. And when you talk about an, an integrated leader, what I'm referring to is it doesn't matter where you see someone. If, if that person is authentic and integrated, whether it's in the elevator at work, in the grocery store, uh, on a youth um, baseball field or sitting next to you in a pew at church, if you are fully in, integrated in the way that you live your life, people see, uh, you know, they know that, that what they see is what they get. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, we talked about that importance of, of that quiet time, that, you know, that love for humility also uh, has uh, helped me emphasize the importance of that you know, of that quiet time, recognizing that not only you're not in control, but, you know, yet you, we're all flawed individuals and, and, uh, and being humble helps uh, in a whole lot of things. You know, and so, Patrick, I, you know, the kind of the, the last... Hey, wait, time out. Sure. Time out. So I love the word humility, love the concept of humility. Um, I also know, I think I'm correct in this, you do not lack for intensity. Um, competitiveness as the attorney in the room giggles. <laughs> and so let's talk a little bit about the struggle because I, we're wired in some of the same ways. We've had enough conversations to know we see something we don't tiptoe in. We say it's time to go. We're going to fight. We're going to push. We're going to press to use a phrase you've used a lot. If it means I got to ride the white horse in, then I'm going to ride the white horse in. I think leaders of our uh, wiring um, can sometimes 
take control and and live with a sense of I'm in control because none of the rest of you are going to take control of this situation. And so we almost become schizophrenic because we press and then we say, hang on a minute, I'm not in control. I got to, so talk a little bit about your struggle with intensity. Cause I know underneath the lessons of humility, there's a Travis Dice who I've watched on the sides of a baseball game and I've watched, watch his kids play football that we compete. And so how is that helping you to compete? And the, the phrase I'll use is meekness because the definition of meekness is restrained power or power used wisely. So how are you going to balance that moving forward? Because I know that when we get after it, we get after it. And some listeners might be listening and saying, well, Travis is just saying he's now going to become this um, fly on the wall and this flowery individual. I know that's not true. So talk about that struggle. Sure. Well, on my wall behind me right there is uh, Vince Lombardi, uh, a famous <laughs> quote that says what it takes to be number one. And he emphasizes that, you know, the world is not made for second people to come in second place. So intensity and competitiveness is absolutely core to my business strategy. But the way that I choose to manifest that self is not in the form of being meek necessarily, but in making sure where credit's due, credit gets paid, and surrounding myself with incredibly talented individuals and setting expectations and you know expecting perfection, but allowing others around you to succeed. And it takes it takes a real love for humility to let others people succeed, you know, to levels even greater than what you could. And, and I'm fortunate here professionally that I've surrounded myself with people that are way more talented than I am. And I think that's in a large part what has allowed Diamondback to be successful is, you know, not me certainly, uh, but the other people that I surround myself with. So taking uh, taking you know, taking a, a position of humility is not a business strategy. It's it's just the right way to live. And it's not new. You know, it's not a COVID re- revelation. It, it's something I've always sh- strived to live towards. And, you know, the, the seven deadly sins, the, the you know, the first deadly sin is pride. And the, the counter to pride is humility. And, you know, in our positions, uh, any, you know, public figure, uh, you know, there's pride that gets pushed on you, whether it's false pride or real pride. And it's only those that have that true love of humility that can make sure that pride doesn't get out in front of them. So in your career, let me just stay here for just a minute. All of us are much older uh, than probably a lot of people listening. But when we took on our careers, and you mentioned in your biography, chasing the career. And if you're competitors and fighters, you're, when you're young, you're thinking, I want to win. I want the corner office. And, and there's nothing negative about that. You're trying to win. At what point in your career did you realize, wait a minute, the winning part's not the hard part. The serving part's the harder part. When did that happen for you? Yeah, it was a very seminal event in, uh, in, the, fall of, uh, in the fall of 1994 when uh, – Take, I had taken my first leadership position with my the former employee, Burlington Resources, and I was in Farmington, New Mexico. And four of us the year before had gotten promoted to this first leadership position. And a year later, three of us were promoted to the next level, and one of us was left behind. And the one that was left behind was me, and I didn't understand it. You know, it was all about, you know, I remember going to some of my bosses and saying, guys, you know, look, this is what I've done. You know, look, this, this you know, 
I was in charge of this group and this group, you know, this group, you know, I got them to do this and I got them to do that. And, you know, I really felt like I was, you know, in a position where I should have been promoted at the same time my other three friends were, quite honestly. And a guy named Danny Hill, some of you might remember him. He spent some time here in Midland, but he came to me and and uh, he said, you can, you're kind of looking at it wrong. You know, he said, don't know if it would have changed the outcome of you being promoted to the next level, but if you don't change your mindset of how you're accomplishing results, you know, you'll never move up in any organization, this or any other. And I asked him exactly what he was talking about, and that's when he introduced the concept of servant leaders, where he said, you know, this is really about you accomplishing results through others. It's your job to make others more successful. It's through their success that your career is going to advance. And so from that day forward, um, as best I could as a competitive guy, you know, I, I worked on making sure others, you know, uh, were successful. And even to this day, I think that has that has been one of the most uh, trajectory-changing conversations that I've ever had in my life was that one event in, in, uh, in the fall of 1994. Wow, I mean that's that's very real in your mind. You can tell that's that's the day that it changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm shameless plug for the whole Michael Jordan series. I don't know if everybody watched that Michael Jordan series. It was an unbelievable series, and it reminds me of the conversation that Phil Jackson had with Michael Jordan when Jordan's a little bit older, and he says, "You got to start bringing other players into this thing." And then he tells the story of when he finally decided to throw the ball to John Paxson and realized, "Oh, okay." If I'm not making other people better, then we're not going to become champions. I mean, it's huge. what a great series. I can tell by the look you watched that. And it was oh, yeah. just... Can't wait to watch it again. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so unbelievable. anyway, Mark, did you watch it? Oh, Mark. Okay. Well, keep going. Okay. So the I kind of want to talk a little bit. We, we kind of moved into it here uh, on leadership challenges. But, you know, uh, I've, I've never been a guy that has tried to lead from the rear. I've always tried to be out in front, and that's, of course, a military, uh, you know, military uh, philosophy there. But, you know, these Zoom meetings and these team meetings, uh, I hope I don't ever have to do any of those again when we get to the other side of these things because I've understood, for me, the importance of leadership by being there, being present. Sometimes that's all it requires to be a really good leader is just be there. And, you know, the the simple gestures that, that I just – violently miss are even things like handshakes. You know, I couldn't shake your hand, you know, for social distancing this morning, you know, coming in. Those things profoundly impact me. A, a, a casual knuckle bump in the hallway for somebody to, that has done a good job or or stopping by somebody's office and, and saying, hey, I really appreciate the work that you did because it generated these results. Uh, or getting coffee next to somebody and, and saying, hey, I, you know, I, I know that you did, you know, you were involved in this process and, you know, Thought it turned out really good. Congratulations. I found that that not being there has really been disruptive in how I think about leadership. And, you know, the the other thing that 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 not being there um, has resonated with me is that relationship between uncertainty and communication. You know, working in isolation, you know, it. I feel like it weakens your defenses against what I call the demons of the world. And that could be fear, you know, loss of job, <clears throat> lack of confidence, poor self-esteem. I mean, we all have demons, right? 
And working in isolation, I fear that people cannot adequately, over time, keep the demons at bay. And from my position as a leader, if I can overly communicate, if I can at least tell what I know, I certainly don't have all the answers, but if I can at least tell what I know, when I know, maybe there's some demons that I can help an individual keep at bay. And so I, I think about that a lot. And and not being physically present, not being there, you don't know when a casual comment in an elevated ride uh, up to the 12th floor might help someone keep a demon at bay. Uh, and the written word uh, in the form of you know weekly emails, what I'm sending out, as best I try, uh, I just don't feel like it provides the same avenue as, you know, face to face conversations. So yeah, just being able to walk the hall, yeah, just to see a face and to be because Zoom faces tell you nothing. Yeah, I mean, you, and as wonderful as it's been able with technology to connect, so to speak, there's still not connection. Yeah, and, and especially the more people you get on the screen. And then, you know, we were joking earlier about people who still haven't learned the etiquette of muting their microphone. And so all these issues, and there's funny stories about kids running in and different things like that. That's all great. But the human connection, uh, I was listening to a lot of things you've said today about leadership were echoed. Uh, I was fortunate to be on a call with George Bush yesterday, and he said, we're going to value human connection better than we have in the last several generations. Yeah, I, I can only hope that's I can only hope that's the case because um, you know, as we emerge from this, there will be things fundamentally changed, and it would be such a blessing if that value of person-to-person contact, you know, not text, not tweets, not, you know, that true value of a personal connection, if it increases in importance, that'll be a as hard as it is to say, that'll be a good outcome from uh from this global pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we talked about, you know, servant leadership, and I'll just kind of conclude some of my thoughts on it. it's hard to serve, you know, when you're not physically present. And when you ask for the heart of a servant leader and, you know, you're having to do it through Zoom meetings or your your conference calls or whatever, it's a lot more difficult. So professionally, um, I know that going forward, our work will look different. I'm not exactly sure, like we talked earlier, about what it's going to look like. Um, but for me, I, I don't feel like I can give up that importance of being there and and being seen and having the opportunity to communicate, however casually or however significantly, in person. And I look forward to that to that day. Let me ask you a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned books earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're a reader. Uh, are there any most gifted or most beloved books that are go-to books for you? You know, I'm, I, I do I do read a lot, and the the Stephen Covey book, mm-hmm. Seven uh, Habits. the Seven Habits, um, started that in the early '90s, and my weekly planner on a day to day basis still revolves around those Seven Habits, and I'll show you a copy of, of what I what I use as we after we're done today. But you know that book has been has been very significant uh, uh, for me, and. Also in the in the mid '90s, there were two individuals that this is going to sound odd uh, that were also very instrumental to me. And I say I say it's because it's odd because I never met either one of them, but they had a, a audio cassette yeah. series. And the first was Zig Ziglar. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Zig is, he left us several years ago. 
uh, his uh, now podcasts uh, live in infamy and are not in infamy. They're, they're a great communication device. I encourage you to listen to Zig Ziglar, and certainly I did. And then the other one was Earl Nightingale. And, uh, Nightingale Conant. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And Earl um, uh, started me in my early career talking about you are and you will become what you think about. It's one of the great. It's the greatest secret in the world. So, those two individuals, while not books in nature, um, uh, were were very uh, very powerful in my in my early days, and I still even to this day I'll still occasionally pull out Earl or I'll pull out uh, Zig and, mm-hmm. and and get a reinfusion of, uh, of those. I was on the Nightingale Conant uh, tape club. Really? So I'd get a cassette, mm-hmm. you know, and go down the road in my sales career and pop the cassette in and listen to. One of the authors, and it's important that people hear what you just said. You can have a mentor and never meet them, mm-hmm. and sometimes those are the most powerful mentors. Mm-hmm. Last question. I've stolen this one from Tim Ferriss. I love it. Take a minute to think about it. If you could put one phrase on a billboard that everybody would see, or one challenge on a billboard that everyone would see, and you get one shot, what's your phrase or what's your challenge you put on that billboard? And this again comes from, uh, you know, Matthew Kelly I mentioned earlier. But it's become the best version of yourself. Mm. Just become the best version of yourself, and uh, and you can you can break that down into a whole lot of things. But at the end of the day, we're put on this earth, you know, for many reasons. But we need to be the best versions of ourselves, and that means different things to each of us. But I think it's been a spectacularly important phrase that I've heard at least in our house for a decade and a half now. Oh, that's incredible. Anything you wish you uh, had have said and you want to say right now? Anything you've left out? No, I just appreciate this opportunity, Patrick, and I hope there's been, you know, there's been a few, there's been a few things that I've said today, but, you know, just, you know, this, this important of, this importance of having a support network at the house, you know, for me, I've mentioned it's, it's my wife, Brenda, you know, uh, life is hard. We know it is. Uh, and you've got to prepare for these daily, daily battles. And for me, that's that uh, that quiet time and uh, each morning with prayer and reflection. And then, and then the last thing is that uh, you got to recognize who's in control. It's not you, not me, not Mark. You know. And so, recognition that we're not in control. There's peace in that. Yeah, it can be conflict, but there's peace in that as well too. So, listen. I hope uh, I hope we've said some things today that are helpful. Uh, I wish continued uh, success for. Uh, for No Neutral Moments, and uh, it's been a a great pleasure talking with you this morning, Patrick. Well, I really appreciate it very much. You're very humble and very kind, and uh, just remember, as I say every podcast, there's just no such thing as a neutral moment, and uh, I hope you realize that and capture that and realize that this season is not neutral as well. I hope you continue to learn from each of these podcasts and from Travis Stice. Thank you for listening, and we'll just see you next week. (laughs) 